Hey, I want to ask you a question. Got a question for you. How are you doing at keeping the promises you make? Okay, I've already set you at odds with me right now this morning, I know. You're already going, okay, I don't want to start that way. I don't want to start this message this way. How about like promises like, yes, honey, I'll take out the trash after dinner. Then you don't do it. I promise we'll give you a promotion in six months. That's what I heard when I was working for a different company many years ago. Never got it. I'll be there, I promise. I'll pray for you. Ooh, um, I promise. If you're like most people, we make promises all the time to other people. But the question is, how often do we keep our promises? I mean, some people believe it's impossible to keep every promise that we make. And these people are of the mindset that they say it's not about the promises you break. It's about how you deal with the promises you break and how you make it right. And I go, really? Is that, is that really what it's about? And is that the philosophy you want to bring forth? And I wonder about those whose promises, who are on the receiving end of the promises, feel about broken promises. Really, you said you were going to pray for me and you didn't? And didn't do this and the trash? I mean, all of that stuff has two different sides to it. Maybe we're in a conversation with someone, you know, and, and we're sharing something that's hard for them. And if you're like me, you know, that natural response is, I'll pray for you. And then if I don't write it down, what happens? I forget. And then the person who thought I was really praying for them, I wasn't. That's, that's not good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just we, we want to take seriously the promises we keep. And we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and you probably figured out by now already, we're going to be talking about promises. And all of these things we've been talking about in this series, it's been tough to hear, isn't it? It's been hard to hear because it's countercultural, isn't it? The topics that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount are difficult because they challenge us to live in a way that is different than the culture all around us. It clashes with the culture we live in. You know, so far Jesus has talked about not only murder, but anger. He's talked not only about adultery, but lust, because he's always going to the heart. He moves us to a way of living that goes beyond our outward behavior, and he moves us to consider our, the internal reality of what we're thinking about and what our hearts are focused on. And, and of course, this challenges us, doesn't it? When we start thinking about the inner motives and why we do what we do and the heart issues, it challenges us if we're gonna live with Jesus as our king. So what does it look like for us to live like Jesus is our king on a daily basis? That's what we've been talking about in this series. And each week we've had this new topic, all guided by Jesus, of course, because he wrote this, he said this. And today we're gonna look at two more of these statements to start out with, you have heard it said... But I tell you, we got six of them total. We got two more today. And I guarantee you that as we get into this today, get ready for a cultural clash. Okay, Dan talked about the cultural clash last week. Once again, we're going to face a, a cultural norm that is in conflict with the words of Jesus. And today, as it's keeping our promises we want to understand how we can be good promise keepers. And every time I hear that word promise keepers, I think of about 30 years ago or 20 years ago when there was this men's movement. How many guys remember promise keepers? Yeah, I'll stay away from that because that's not really what I want to talk about today. But we want to understand what Jesus is saying to us this morning about being a promise keeper. And we're going to see that living with Jesus as our king means that we keep our promises even when it hurts. 
Even if it causes us pain, pull out your insert. You can follow along with me with the scriptures and also some blanks to fill in. But living with Jesus as our king means we're going to keep our promises, even if it hurts. Now, the two areas we're gonna look at this morning in a specific area that Jesus addresses is marriage and taking oaths or our words, keeping promises of what we talk about. So we're gonna walk through these verses today and we're gonna start in Matthew chapter five and we will be in verses 31 to 37. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, pull out the insert, look behind me and it's all there. So the first promise, we're gonna dive right into it. I hope you're ready, are you ready? Seatbelts fashioned. Speeding on through this safety time. Okay, has to do with our marriage relationship. Look at the words of Jesus, verse 31. It says this, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Really, Gary, we're gonna talk about divorce today? Yes, we're gonna talk about divorce today, ready? But Jesus says, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So clearly, these two verses are pretty plain and they're out there. They're the subject of marriage and divorce. Now, I'm well aware that as I look about on you this morning, that many of us, if not most of us, have personally experienced divorce. I mean, neither it's a failed marriage or maybe divorced parents or divorced siblings or divorced children I'm also aware that many of you have seen God at work. He's shown you his grace. He's shown you his mercy so that even though maybe a previous marriage failed, the current marriage you are in is a real blessing. And I thought, isn't that what God does? Isn't that what God does? I mean, he steps into the messes we create and he heals the broken. And he does that for every part of our life. Now, in the years I've been alive and I've, been aware of divorces and sometimes far away and sometimes up close when you get to see them in action. I can't think of one instance where the divorce itself was anything but an awful experience. The process it is an awful, awful experience. Because I don't want you to think about the divorce as a piece of paper called a divorce decree. And I don't want you to think about divorce as a judicial proceeding terminating the legal status of something called marriage. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about divorce as the dissolution of a love relationship that began with both partners promising and believing they would stay married for the rest of their lives. So we need to ask, what does Jesus mean as he talks about divorce? Divorce. I mean... Is divorce always forbidden? Is there any time that it is allowable? Well, you've seen the verses already today and I'm gonna walk through them in a little more detail because to understand the words of Jesus, we need to understand something that was going on at that time. There was a controversy going on between two different groups of Jewish rabbis. Now this controversy centered on the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one, of which he quotes in verse 31. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him and he finds something indecent about her, the verse is going to say, then you can just write a certificate of divorce and you are done. You're free. <laughs> so there were two schools of thought about how to interpret this verse and, and, and there were different sides of the divorce debate on uh, the words displeasing and indecent were what they were wrangling about. The interpretations they saw were different. 
Some Jewish rabbis taught that something indecent could refer to just about anything you ever wanted it that displeased or that the husband felt was indecent. I mean, it could be something as simple as burning the toast in the morning. Can you imagine? Or, 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 I just don't like your looks anymore. You don't look good to me anymore. Or, I don't like that dress you're wearing today. Or whatever it is you, they wore in those days. And, and, and maybe I found someone more attractive than you now. So here you go. Here's a written certificate of divorce. Bye-bye. That was one school of thought. Then there was the other school of thought that, that said this. They said the divorce could be granted under certain types of sexual misconduct But at the time, it wasn't about adultery. Because you know what happened if you were caught in adultery? Your life was over. I mean, really, they put people to death for that in the the first century. But then, in verse 32, Jesus says, but I tell you, here he comes, I tell you. And his statement, he raises this bar of expectation for marriage. Or better yet, if you were to compare what he just said there and what he says in Matthew 19 about divorce, he says in in Matthew 19, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And then he goes on to say some other things. Now, if you compare that, you'll see that Jesus is talking about returning to the original perspective of marriage given by God when he addresses this issue. (laughs) Jesus went way beyond the debate of the Jewish rabbis. He wasn't going to take one side or the other. He's saying, hey, remember this. God created marriage. Let's not go to Deuteronomy. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter two. God created marriage. (laughs) And that in marriage, the man and the woman become one flesh. And that what God has joined together should never be separated. So Ken Hughes, as I was reading his commentary this week, it says, whenever divorce occurs, it is an aberration, which means it is something that was not meant to be at all. And why is this? Well, because marriage is this sacred, this holy covenant promise between a man and a woman. Marriage was designed, you see, to be a reflection of the saving love that God has for us in Jesus. (laughs) And this puts marriage in a whole different category than any other human relationship on the face of this earth. Marriage between a husband and wife is like the union of Jesus and his church, Paul writes about in Ephesians 5. Marriage is about this selfless covenant between a man and a woman. And so Jesus, he returns to the importance and the significance of marriage that had been lost as they started to debate the way divorce could be handled. These religious leaders had just lost perspective. They lost what it's all about. And I think today it would do us well to return to looking at marriage the way that God does, (laughs) as a holy promise between two people who become one flesh. But even though divorce is not God's ideal, Jesus, in our, in our verse today, gives an exception. And the exception, Jesus says, is that's for sexual immorality. Now, if you ever heard anybody preach on this before, you've heard that word. What that word is in Greek, it's porneia. I know what you're thinking when you think of porneia, and that's actually true. It means committing adultery one time, many times. It could be replacing the need for sexual gratification with pornography. It could, it could be engaging in prostitution. It could be a whole lot more, any type of sexual sin. It's not limited. Jesus is not providing the only exception, though, for if we were to read about Paul 
And what he talked about in marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he also says divorce is okay when there's a desertion by an unbelieving spouse. But I want to get back to the more important point here is that Jesus is saying that in God's eyes, marriage is this lifelong covenant that should not be broken. But when sexual immorality of one kind or another occurs, this breaks the bond in God's eyes and the innocent party can divorce and remarry. And even though Jesus gives a reason for divorce, I just want to challenge you, challenge all of us. That's not to be seen as, okay, I'm going to do that now. I've had, we've had this situation. I'm just going to run right to that reason. Jesus said it was okay, so I'm going for it. Because Jesus spoke of returning marriage to its original covenantal commitment. So let me just talk about that for a minute. You know, in our world, we have contracts, right? We have written contracts. There are agreements between two people. They say certain things. And then we have a covenant, which is like a promise. Always in marriage, whenever I'm doing ceremonies, I want to focus in on the covenant and what, the, what, what it means to have a covenant with someone. Because a contract says this. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But if you don't do this for me, it is as, as it's written in the terms of our contract, then I don't have to honor the contract anymore and do this for you. So it's all Splitsville, right? That's a contract. But a covenant is a promise. It says, I promise to do this for you. And even if you don't do this for me, I will continue to do this for you. There's the difference between a contract and a covenant. See, there are two things going on in this idea of marriage that Jesus brings forth. The first idea of one of permanence and the second idea of one is purity. When Jesus is your king, it means that you live in God's original design for marriage and are committed to its permanence and to its purity. Now, we probably already know this in our hearts, but I hope you can begin to see just how important your commitment in marriage is to your spouse before God. I hope you can see just how important the sexual oneness that you are to have in marriage with your spouse is important for God, to God. I mean, let me just give you, if you take somebody's car and you damage it in some way and then you bring it back to them and, and you fix it and all that, it's different. You can always pay that person back. But if you violate someone's sexuality, you destroy something of their very soul. You can never totally undo that damage. And that's what Jesus says about divorce. God meant for us to enjoy our sexuality to the fullest. And this happens only in a marriage relation between a man and a woman. Let me... Let me take the words of Tim Keller a little bit. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And, and I, I just want to focus in on this thought for a minute. I want to read a quote to you. He says this, marriage is a union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. He goes on to say that sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Isn't that powerful? It's so clear. And he goes on to say, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. 
Sex is not to be used to say anything else. I think that's why Jesus gives some permission to divorce when sexual sin has happened. It breaks this belonging completely, this belonging permanently, this belonging exclusively relationship between a husband and a wife. And that's why we go to extremes to protect the marriage sexual relationship because the greatest violence that can happen to anyone happens when we violate him or her sexually. If you weren't here last week, I just want to ask you to hear the message that Dan brought on on adultery and lust. I want to invite you to go watch it on our website. Because the intensity with which we need to pursue the purity part of this is is really powerful in that message. Dan suggested near the the end of his message several ways to, to really resist the temptation of lust so that it doesn't lead to sexual sin. You would all agree with me, right? We live in a very sensual culture. Everything around us speaks to go do this, be a part of this, grab your eyes, make your happiness about that. And so in light of that, we need to take, like was mentioned last week, extreme measures to remain pure, to remain pure. See, the sexual relationship in marriage is the one area that Jesus said when violated is so hard to recover from that divorce is permitted. Notice the word. Permitted. Not required. A few few weeks ago, we held a one-day marriage seminar here at LBF. The speakers were Justin and Tricia Davis. And if you were here, you may remember their story, but I want to tell you a little bit about it if you weren't here. About 10 years into their marriage, while uh, Justin was trying to start a new church, he was a pastor of this brand new church that was starting. He had an affair, sexual affair, with Tricia, his wife's best friend. Hang on to that thought for a minute. <laughs> and that would destroy probably most marriages. And it creates this giant challenge to even consider keeping the marriage intact. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, this sin was an example of the exception clause. And Tricia had every biblically-based permission to end the marriage. But after time of thinking about it, I mean, they separated and everything. But after a time of thinking about it, she says, I want to try and choose a different path. (laughs) Their story was a very real one. It just grabbed you. And I know it's been experienced by others. But to hear their experience was powerful. And it may not be the norm But the sexual affair doesn't have to end the marriage. They separated. Then as time went by, they both decided to get counseling. First apart, then together. And they spent counseling for a very long time. And their goal was just this. We want to see if, we want to see if the marriage can be saved. They went into this with no illusions of what it might be and what it might not be. You see, although Jesus gave the exception clause, as I mentioned, when it comes to sexual immorality, his first desire is always about reconciliation. And if you've been through this, you know this is tough. And many times it's totally impossible. It's going to require huge amounts of humility. It's going to require huge amounts of forgiveness. It's going to require huge amounts of time of rebuilding the trust. And it always takes not one, it takes two people for that to actually come into life. And it did. It took both of them to humble themselves 
It took Justin to take a very long and deep and hard look at, at, at his life and what even led to his need to have a sexual affair. It took Tricia the willingness to, to start the process of attempting to forgive Ju Justin. This was the hardest thing she said she'd ever even thought about considering doing. Now the story has this ending that breaks the norm of sinful behavior that after years, literally years, we're not talking months. We're not talking weeks. We're talking years of hard work, both individually and together. They began to work on re reconciling their marriage. And if they were here today, after all this work that's done and all this time that's gone by and all the tears and all the pain and suffering and all the digging into your emotional life and all of it, they would, they would say, we're not there yet. We're not 100% back. And in fact, they probably have to make the daily choice, conscious choice, to forgive, to live with humility, to trust each other. See, the reason I tell you this story is just to let you know that when sexual sin happens in marriage, divorce doesn't have to be automatic. Sometimes we see exception clauses. We say, well, if this happens, I'm out of here. Well, that may be the case, but you don't necessarily have to. See, Jesus gives us permission to divorce in that situation, but there are other options. Because of that one flesh bond created in marriage, when you divorce, a part of who you are is taken away with the person you're divorcing. That's why divorce has such a strong, that's why Jesus, pardon me, has such strong words about divorce because divorce, I think, is even worse than a physical death. See, divorce kills our spirit while it leaves the body still living. It feels like death, and it is. It's the death of something very deep and important and valuable, but the person you are divorced from is not dead, are they? They're still living. You still have to face them, maybe, if you have kids. It's just, oh, so hard. And if you're here this morning, and you're married, and you think back to those promises you made to each other. Can, do, you, do you remember what words you said to each other? You're looking at each other in the eyes. You're in love. Nothing's ever going to go wrong on that day. <laughs> remember those days? I see you do. I see you do. Hey, those vows are serious. They were witnessed by God. They were witnessed by people that came to your wedding. And they're all-inclusive, aren't they? For better or for worse. Is there a middle road there? No, it's, all, it's everything. For richer or for poor. In sickness, not just physical sickness. There's all sorts of sickness, right? There's emotional sickness. And in health. Until death do us part. See, how are you doing? How are you doing at staying faithful to the promise you made on, those, on that wedding day? Maybe you're tempted to throw in the towel but when you remember the promise, you said, I know I said I was going to keep going. I know I was going to do this. Or when you're tempted to let your eye wander, the promise says, I committed myself to this one woman. Or I committed myself to this one man for a lifetime, so God help me. See, he knows that the decision of divorce is going to create wreckage in your life and in the lives of those you love. So do not buy into the lie that the most important thing for you is to be happy. God has so much more important things in store for you. And if you're presently engaged in any kind of activities or thoughts that would harm your spouse sexually, I want you to tell you Jesus can give you the power to overcome those weaknesses of the flesh. 
If your marriage has come undone because of divorce, Jesus can give you a second chance to find sexual meaning and intimacy and identity. That's part of the gospel message as well. You know, and if you're here this morning and, and you're single, marriage is not a possibility for you for one reason or another, Jesus also can make your life full and meaningful and purposeful and complete. He promises that. He's got it covered on every, every facet of life. See, when Jesus is our king, it means that we will pursue God's original design for marriage as we are committed to its permanence and its purity. God says, you know, this is dangerous because I'm saying God said, but he says, you know, I want your marriage to be a lifelong promise, a lifelong covenant. I don't want anything to get in the way of the type of relationship that I know you can have. And while I hate divorce, I understand how sexual sin can break that one flesh bond you have with each other. So if you're unable to forgive each other or if one party is not willing to reconcile, I'll be with you when you go through divorce. And I'll be with you if you choose to remarry. Now this is a huge subject that I'm just touching a little bit on. I said, Dan, can I just do a whole week on this passage? We gotta move on, gotta move on. So, you know, this could be a whole series as we talk about the complexities and the uniquenesses of relationships and how they work. But I hope you are hearing this morning the heart and the mind of Jesus as we cover these two verses. But it's time to look at our second promise. So. With all of that rumbling around in your head, let's, let's go to verse 33, all right? He says again, you have heard it said, there's that statement, to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but to fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I know what you're thinking. Yes, I can. I can change my hair color. I can look young when I'm really not. You know, all that kind of stuff. But you know what happens, it grows back, right? So anyway, it's, the truth is there. All you need to say is simply yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now the concept of vows clearly goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament we find that people made vows to God all the time and they knew that if they didn't keep their vows, it would be considered sin and then they would have to atone for that sin. So the Jewish teachers at that time always insisted on the truthfulness of their words, the value of a person's word. In fact, at the time of Christ, one of the rabbinical schools no one laughed for service on this, but this is a true story. At the time of Christ, one of the rabbinical schools even banned what we would call normal, polite courtesies. You know how you say something and it may not be totally true? And by like complimenting a bride on her looks when she was in fact just a plain, boring woman, okay? So I don't know if there were a lot of those in the first century, but that's, evidently they had a problem with that. They were so concerned, you see, about speaking the truth that they came out with this decree. These Jewish teachers said, all brides are beautiful on their wedding day. So you can say whatever you want because all brides are beautiful. And I go, whoa, they're usually beautiful anyway, right? On their wedding day. In their minds, they thought, these Jewish teachers thought that would help people keep true with their words. 
Two things brought about vow swearing to a head during the time of Christ. The first was making vows of a frivolous nature. And we do that today, don't we? Honest. I swear that truck almost hit me. Honest. I swear, I swear, I swear. You know, you know we use that swear word. And, and it's a little frivolous the way we use that. Or the second problem was even worse. They didn't want to swear on God's name because it was binding. And they knew that if they swore on God's name, that God was now a partner with them. And if they didn't keep that, that oath or that vow, then they were in big trouble. But if you swore by heaven, which you see in this verse, or earth, which you see in this verse, or Jerusalem, or by hair color, then it was less binding. The thought being that if God's name was used, he became this partner. But if you vowed by something else, well, I can break that vow. It's no big deal. <laughs> While at one time the taking of vows before God was encouraged, at the time of Jesus, it had gotten to the point that even though someone might say, may I never see the comfort of Israel again, if, da, 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 you know, it really meant nothing. People didn't know whether to believe that. The use of oaths was like children saying, this is what I'm going to do, but I have my fingers crossed, so I'm not going to do it. Right? I don't have to tell the truth. And so because this was utterly bizarre and it became so impossible to know when someone was telling the truth or not, Jesus just simply speaks to this issue, doesn't he? And I believe this issue of telling the truth is clearly applicable for us today. The thought shouldn't be going through our mind. Now, did I use the promise word? Did I say I would promise to do that? Or did I just say it without using the promise word? They just say it, you know, because it doesn't matter if you promised or not. The goal here is that if you said you would do it, you need to do it. If you said you're going to be about this, you need to be about this. In verse 37, Jesus just summarizes it very clearly. See, if you're going to live with him as your king, just say a simple yes, I will. Or a simple no, I won't. That's the hardest word though, right? No. We say yes too quickly, but we learn to learn how to say no, I won't. Because anything beyond this, he says, is from the evil one. So does that mean Christians are never to take oaths? Is that a question going through your mind right now? Maybe it was? Well, if it isn't, I'm going to answer it anyway. Because if you look to the Apostle Paul as an example, there are two times that he gave an oath. He gave a vow. Once with, he was writing to the Corinthians and once when he was writing to the Galatians. And obviously Paul didn't think he was going against the words of Jesus when he appealed to God as his witness under the pressure of defending his brand new ministry. It's like taking an oath or like taking a vow. Likewise, there are times in our culture today that you and I will have to take an oath. If you're a witness on a witness stand, you have to take an oath in a court of law that you will swear to tell the truth. Or when you join the military, I remember standing in line and I had to personally swear that I would serve our country under the guise, or not guise, under the, under the mandate of the Constitution. Or if you're a police officer, you have to swear to serve as well. Very simply, it's necessary to take an oath then because of the evil there is in our world, in our mankind. If there's no evil out there, then there'd be no lies and there's no need to take an oath. And so vows were put into place to assure the truth in an untruthful world. So if it is necessary to take a vow in those kinds of settings, it's not a reflection on you. It's a reflection on this evil world and it's a protection but Jesus is saying here that those who know you should know your word is always good. There was a time probably, probably before I was born where your word was your bond. You didn't have to put it on paper. You didn't have to write a contract. You said something, it was as good as a written contract. That's changed, of course. But is your word good? Is it? 
Think about your life. Is your word counted on? Because we got to remember that our words, the things we say to each other, should not only be salt to preserve a society, but they should also be light to point people to Jesus. So when Jesus is your king, it means this. It means you live in a way that confirms the truthfulness and the reliability of your words. When you live as, with Jesus as your king, it means that you live in such a way that confirms the truthfulness and the reliability of your words. Our yes should be lived out as a yes. We say yes, we should be living it out as a yes. Our no, we live out as a no. Nothing else should be needed. Because when Jesus is our king, we are to live in profound truthfulness. But you and I both know we fall into these times where we say yes and we don't follow through with the yes. You know, maybe we're trying to please some people by agreeing with maybe this person coming at us very strong, you know, strong personality. And even though we don't agree with them, we, we go along with it. And afterwards we get home, we think, well, I don't, why did I say that? I really don't believe that. You know, or maybe someone has done something to you and really you're, there's this anger thing and you spread a story that's not true just to get back to them. Or maybe you try and escape a, a ticket, a speeding ticket by telling the police officer when he asks you, do you know how fast you're going? You say, no, I don't know. My speedometer's broken when it really isn't. Or maybe for convenience, you, you write a sick note for your kid at school, but they're not really sick. But you know it's way easier to talk about a sick note than it is about the real reasons they're not going to be in school, right? Or the classic one that's been here since time and eternity is, my dog ate my homework. You know? Or maybe you commit to serving here in church, but something on a particular Sunday you like better. I'm going to go do this instead. And so you call up and, of course, we'll say, we'll let you out of it, you know? Not appreciating the impact that, that because you didn't remember your yes or say yes to your yes had on everybody else. Jesus simply said, yes, let your yes be yes and your no, no. When you say you'll do something, you do it. Not letting something more appealing take over and actually turn you into a liar. So when you get pulled over by the police officer, you say, and I've actually said this, by the way, thanks, I needed to be slowed down. That was good. That was my yes, yes. Jesus says that as a Christian, our word should be rock solid. If we say we will do something, we can count it on to see it through. And you know why it's so important? Because the non-believing world is looking at us, especially if they know you're a Christian, and they're going, is there anything different about you, Gary? Is there anything different about the way you live as a Christian that's different from me? You know, I just want to know. I want to know if this is valuable and worthy of something I should give consideration to. And the truthfulness of our words is one of those areas that people can easily look to and they can see, hopefully, that we are different. Because we speak words of truth. We let our yes be yes and we let our no be no. See, when Jesus becomes our king, we will live in a way that confirms the truthfulness and the reliability of our words. So let me wrap this up. Today's been about keeping promises. We've only focused on these two areas, one marriage and one within our words, because that's what Jesus focused on, of course. But have you ever thought what a marvelous thing a promise is? When a person makes a promise, they reach out into an unpredictable future and they make one thing predictable. 
When you make a promise, you reach out into an unpredictable future and you make one thing predictable, that you will be there even if being there costs you something that you didn't really even want to pay. When a person makes a promise, you stretch yourself out into circumstances that no one can control or controls at least, but you can control at least one thing, that you will be there no matter what the circumstance is. You can be counted on. And when you make a promise, you take a hand, you see, in creating your own future. Why? Because living with Jesus as our king means keeping our promises, even if it causes us pain. I don't know about you, that's pretty challenging for me. It's pretty challenging. But hasn't all the weeks we've been talking about this kind of hit us right between the eyes and go, whoa, help me wake up, Jesus. Before we can be promise keepers, though, we need to be promise receivers. The Bible is clear about God's promise to us. He says, you know, you're not in this alone if you accept me, as, accept Jesus as your Savior. That Jesus is the one who has given us life. He's given us the ability to keep our promises. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to enable you to do things that normally you wouldn't do. I'm going to enable you to say yes where you normally wouldn't say yes. I'm going to say, enable you to say no where you normally wouldn't say no if you will walk with me, if you will listen with me, if you'll respond to me. Some people call that a supernatural life because it goes beyond the natural tendencies that we have. That's the power we have within us to be great promise keepers even when it hurts. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the privilege of standing before this church family and sharing these words, your words, Jesus. It's been my prayer that all that is said and done would be accurate to the intent and what you desired for this passage to say to our hearts today in the 21st century. Jesus, your scripture, your words are so relevant for today in both of these areas. I want to pray for the marriages here that for all marriages, not those that are just struggling, but for all marriages that we would return, we would reconsider your original intent for the commitments we make to one another and that we would learn how to live in a greater way in the, in the way that you have for us to enjoy one another and experience you and demonstrate how Jesus loved his church by selflessness. And God, when it comes to promises, we probably take those very lightly. We probably don't consider them too deeply. But I pray, God, that as a result of this time we spent today and hearing the seriousness with which you take, you say we should guard our words, that you would help us to be disciplined, spirit-living people who when we say we do something, even if it's going to hurt, we follow through and we do it. And God, would you use both of these promises as we work on growing and keeping them, would you use them to help a lost and dying world see the reality of Jesus in our lives on an everyday basis? So it's with that desire in my heart and for all of us that I pray these things in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.